We're here to talk with professional, usually Hollywood, creatives about their inner world, their journey, tools they've used to get to a better place in their life, what they're currently bumping up against, what their challenges are, and how they're learning to overcome them, and exploring the world of healing and where that meets Hollywood. So today I get to interview my dad, and he has so many fascinating stories to mine that I really wanted to turn this into a 10-part series, but for now, it's in two parts. Robert Baruch is a mindfulness teacher. He's taught at Boston University, Harvard, University of New Hampshire, and University of Vermont. In 2019, he completed a two-year mindfulness meditation teacher training program with Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock, given through UC Berkeley. For the last three years, Robert has been teaching mindfulness courses online and in his hometown of Litchfield, Connecticut, with in-person classes. After a successful 35-year career in the movie industry, he is turning his focus to his longtime passion of teaching teaching mindfulness. He is a founding partner of the Center for Mindful Business, where they are committed to bringing mindfulness into businesses and business to mindfulness teachers. Robert enjoys teaching and coaching individuals as well as large groups in mindfulness. First, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being willing to open your heart. How are you feeling after the breathwork session? Relaxed. Very, very relaxed. Calm. A little emotional. You, uh, you can really pick the songs that tap into my uh, history and songs that uh, tap into my emotions because of past relationships with the songs and what they bring up. So Yeah, and I'm curious how that is for you to feel emotional. Does it feel refreshing and heartwarming? Does it feel unnerving or vulnerable? Like, what is that for you? I like it. I, li- I like feeling emotional. You know, that kind of emotional, the loving kind of emotion, uh, bringing up friendships and loved ones and experiences that you've had with these people, whether they're still here or not here. Mm. And especially the ones that have passed on, bringing up emotions with these beings is powerful. I, I, I like it. I like feeling those emotions. Yeah. And giving yourself space to just be in connection with those feelings and those people feels really good. Maybe because we don't always do that throughout our day and it's just nice to be in connection with that or what is that for you? I I think it brings a sense of peace knowing that, you know, there's a cycle of life and that we have loved ones that are still here with us, physically present. We have loved ones that physically far away and we have loved ones that are you know not on this plane anymore not on this way of life consciousness and to connect with these people is it it just kind of brings up the universality of love usefulness that comes with it like the eternal nature of it it's nice that you have that relationship to your emotions because i feel like there's a lot of people who don't want to feel any of that because it just feels too vulnerable Um, My first question that came through, I had some questions before we did your breathwork session, but then actually as you were breathing, I started connecting into the Akashic realm and I was just getting like, you know what, I just want to give him like one word, prompts. The first thing I wanted to give you as a prompt is mom. Well, it's interesting. (laughs) It's interesting you saying the word mom. Mm-hmm. Because literally the first 
image that came up for me was your mother. Oh, interesting. Because I've heard you say the word mom so often throughout the year. (laughs) I'm thinking of Christine, your Mm. mother, and what a good mother she is. Oh, that's nice. And what do you hear when I say dad? Uh, I hear me. Yeah. Okay. And how do you feel about dad? Do you have any realizations in this moment as the person you are today, like how that's changed over the years as a, from the spiritual perspective? Well, that's a really big question. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going that, for big questions. Narrow that down a little bit. How I feel. <laughs> how I've changed over the years in terms of being a dad your relationship to being a dad over the years like what is it for you now versus how it was before and you've had various children you have your own dad and i think as the years have gone on i've been able to be more present as a dad versus when i was first a dad my first experience of being a dad was obviously with you and there were so many things going on, and life was so challenging and busy um, and emotional, physically demanding, that, um, you know, it was literally, though, as you were growing older, and, and I had, um, and two more kids came along, I was just so busy trying to keep things together, work-wise, financially, emotionally, that uh, I was Ironically, it cut out here, and I couldn't hear what he said. Now, as I've gotten older, I have, I've made the time, I've created the space to be more present. What's interesting is I feel like watching Jake, you know, and his understanding or mentorship of like, what did he and or what did you have to look at? I feel like, and this is a theory, I feel like a lot of where our parenting comes from is just in reaction to what we didn't like as a child. So we're like, well, I didn't like that. So I'm going to do the opposite of that for my kids. What was your process? Like, did you have someone to look to as like, oh, that's a good father. Let me be like that. Good question. Or do you think you were like, I just don't want to do that thing that he didn't do or he did do. And I'm just going to be that thing. I think in in a lot of ways, it was a reaction to what my father did not do. Right. Especially in the emotional realms and and the spiritual realms, it felt like there was a a lot missing, a lot missing emotionally. And I wanted to do it differently with my children. It's so interesting, like generationally, how it seems like we're starting to bring more and more presence to our children. Like I imagine your father's father didn't have that kind of... There was just, that just wasn't what you did. You weren't, you didn't need to show up present for your children. It wasn't an expectation of fathers in that generation. What do you think that was? Like, there was just different ideas of what fatherhood was over the generations? Mm-hmm. I think it's changed. It's changed over the generations. And you, you're, you're right about the image of my grandfather to my father. If he just showed up physically, if he just showed up, I think that was that was enough for my father, or at least he thought that was enough. So for my dad, showing up in ways of camping trips, Boy Scout, taking me to the stable with him, that was that was all he could do. 
That was all he could do to connect with me. I wanted more of a connection with my kids. And I think you even want more of a connection with your kids. Yeah, I feel like there's a more of an expectation that we be present with our children and almost like entertain them too all the time. Be crafty and be spiritually connected, be patient, connect to their emotions, like process with them. That That is like so, such like the opposite world that your grandfather was in. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost come 180. Yeah. That, you know, my father would say to me, you're not supposed to be friends with your kids. You're supposed to be a parent, which just means discipline, narrow path and giving them you know, guidelines, parameters to stick to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, change, you know, change and change with her. And I think every generation thinks that what they are doing is the correct way. Mm-hmm. They try to pass it on to their kids. No, this is the way you should be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'm trying to pass on to you. No, this is the way you should be doing it. And I'm sure you will be passing on to your kids the way you see that the right way of parenting and uh, connecting with kids and, you know, and your, your children with their kids will be doing it differently. Yeah. And it's just interesting because I don't necessarily feel that there's less struggle as a parent doing it, trying to do it this way of connective responsive parenting. I almost feel that there may be more struggle in doing it that way. It takes perhaps more patience. I think there is something to be said for the rigid kind of predictability of that structured discipline of what you can expect that you had. But on the flip side, then processing your emotions, being patient with yourself, like all the things. So we had a little internet interruption there. So, but what we were talking about is just this responsive, connected parenting, um, I think takes potentially more patience and doesn't feel like it's less of a struggle perhaps. So I think in the moment of parenting, in the childhood phases, that it might be quote unquote harder in one sense, But hopefully, as children grow up and they learn to regulate their nervous systems and like be calm for themselves and be connected with their feelings and all of these things, that they hopefully will have less work to do in one sense. That's the hope. I think we all kind of fuck up our kids in our own special way. Yeah, I mean we can't help it because we we all have our own our own stuff that we're dealing with. We all have our own childhood trauma. Yeah. It's going to come out. We all have our triggers. You know, we see it as I've gotten older, I've become more aware of my issues, the things that trigger me. Mm. Things that don't make me feel good, things that make me angry. Yeah. I have moved from being angry to getting angry and quickly looking at what's this all about. Now, when you're young, when you're a child, you get angry and you get angry. You really are not self-aware of 
What is this about? Why am I angry? If you're lucky, you might have a parent that talks to you about why are you getting angry? I yeah. didn't have I didn't have such parents that uh, allowed me to be self reflective. So yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of in at least British culture where that's not, or in a lot of American homes too, where that's still not something that people are aware of and able to process with their children, and so they are still as adults dealing with that thing of trying to understand their own self, their own triggers. Mm -hmm. Like, why am I triggered? Why am I angry? What's underneath this? Like you're saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, and I think, I think, you know, as your parenting, that's changing. In my father's childhood, that was not even a, a thought <laughs> that mm -hmm. uh, they would look at their emotional state, their spiritual state. It was pretty much as it's written, this is what you will do. Spirituality was show up at church, show up at temple. That's it. Did you feel connected when you showed up at temple? Did you feel a connection? No, that was not, that, there was no spirituality in that for me. Okay. In the temple. So where did you feel connected as a child? Did you feel connected at the horse stable? I think I felt connected because I, I had parents that loved me and I felt that love. Yeah. Especially from my mother. It was harder to feel it from my father. He, he could be distant and he wasn't very communicative. Uh, but my mother showed her love, you know, and sacrificed her her days, her hours to to help me and my siblings. And she was always there for us. Do you think she felt that it was a sacrifice or do you think she just felt like this is what I do? This is what you do. This is what she does. Yeah. Because I don't think she had the pressure or the expectation of anything else. Right. Right. The expectations was be a mother, be a good mother, be, be there for your kids, make sure they're okay. And I wonder if that almost made her or that generation of women, a lot of them happier in the sense that there was no other choice in it, quote unquote, like, this is what you do. Yeah, that's what we do. And it just, there's no confusion here. You just show up for your kids. That's it. You're done. You do, you've done your job. Get them to school, get them home, make sure they do their homework and uh, you've done a good job. Make sure they have three meals and they get plenty of milk. <laughs> I just had this thought that's so interesting to me is like, what if your mom was in my generation? What would she be doing? Would she be trying to be an entrepreneur? Would she be like working at a beauty salon part time? Like, what would that be for her? I just wonder. Well, I think going back, she would have followed her, her passion for things. She went to design school she went to after two years of college she went to interior design school i never knew that in new york city <laughs> so she wanted to be a interior designer i think she would have followed that and probably would have been working interesting and would have had somebody taking care of the kids <laughs> so your youngest brother had a nanny yes he we had a sleep in helper who really took care of him until he was six years old. Yeah. Spent, spent a lot of time with him. Time that my mother, uh, our, the same mother, spent with me 
my brother and my sister spend a lot of one-on-one time with us until there were too many kids to do one-on-one anymore. I always say, you know, there was my older brother and myself got a lot of attention from my mother. By the time the third child came, she changed his zone defense from one-on-one. It was just like, and by the time the fourth child came, she was just keeping it together. Yeah. Okay. Because she was also making the meals and like doing the laundry and all that. Yeah. Yeah. She was running the whole house. Right. She was running the house, but she always had someone helping. Okay. And, And specifically the youngest, Ricky, there was someone there who just really took care of him. But by the time he was getting older, my older brother and myself were out of the house or off to college. It was almost like two separate families mm-hmm. because between my, old, my older brother and my younger brother, I think it's 13 years apart. So we talked about mom, we talked about dad and generational differences and, you know, just happened to come up with this thing about your mom and like, oh, what would it be like if she was following her passion and had this kind of different paradigm or what have you. One of the other words that I wrote down was horses. Hmm. I'm curious what that brings up for you story-wise. And all Hmm. of this, I'm interested in like this perspective from the philosophical, spiritual perspective. I mean, horses is immediately attached to my father. Yeah. I mean, it's almost synonymous. Horses, dad horse's dad that was his great love and that was his that was his heart space that was his soul being at the stable being with horses and if you follow if you track it back a little bit he really didn't have much of a relationship with his mother and when he was 12 his parents separated and then divorced and he went with his father and he he really didn't see his mother again you know for, for many, many years. So he didn't have much of a relationship with his mother, but what he did have, what they shared was her love for horses. And his mother passed down her love for horses to him. And I think in a lot of ways, his love for horses and being around horses was a substitute for not having a mother around. Mm. You know, you could really feel dad's love when you were at the stable, when he was around horses. It was like his connection to the mother energy, the feminine energy, the like heart-centered energy. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. Um, You and I had a really, this is skipping way to the end of your dad's life, had a really incredibly, incredibly deeply spiritual experience with your dad's passing. And I'm just curious like what that experience was for you, if you feel comfortable sharing about it at all. Um, I mean, it, it was a, it, it was powerful in making a life of the man complete for me. It was just completing what was a long life. I, you know, I had a long life with my dad. I was 69 years old when he passed away hmm. and we went through a lot of different things. He was as we talked about, um, he really didn't have a relationship with his mother. And uh, he went through a lot. He was at, in World War II. So for four years, he's flying bomber planes over Southeast Asia. Uh, and uh, they didn't have a way back then, or at least for him, 
They didn't have a way to talk it out. <sighs> All these emotions that came up, four years at war, a mother leaving at age 12 and not coming back. I mean, these are very difficult emotional. Traumatic, yeah. Traumatic. Yeah. And, you know, therapy is not an option for him. Mm-hmm. Or talking to a friend. You know, things mm -hmm. like we take for granted if we're going through something half as traumatic as that. We're, we're, we're talking to a therapist. We're talking to friends. We're talking to family. None of that. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't permission within himself because that was not what you did. It's not what you did. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So getting back to how to feel about yeah, when we were there with him and he was passing and we were just saying, you said you held his shoulder and you said, it's okay, Dad, you can let go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was really beautiful. Very emotional time, but not not so much sadness, just completeness. I mean, I really, mm. I really felt complete when he passed on. It was like, I, I was happy for him. Mm. I was happy because his last months, his last years were not um, were not joyful in any way. He was not happy. So I think passing on, it really felt like a relief. It's interesting for my mother. She still says she she has not cried over him passing. And I think the relief of him moving on is so great for her. Is is so important. Well, she was such a caretaker his whole life. She was exhausted. And you could see it. You can see it in pictures of the last months of his life, or even the last year of his life. You look at pictures of my mother, of your grandmother, and then you look at pictures of her today, which mm -hmm. is three years later, mm -hmm. and she looks ten years younger than how she looked during the final days mm -hmm. or weeks or months of my father. It seems like maybe he was really struggling with his demons, that stuff that was unprocessed. Yeah. No. It, it's interesting. He never processed four years of being in a war situation. Mm -hmm. And that is what came out mm. at the, in the end. He thought he was at war. He thought he was at mm. or Air Force uh, Hospital. Oh, God. So you were working, or maybe you still are, with your friend Lee Simons on this documentary about PTSD with veterans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I wish, what would it have been like for your dad to have had that kind of therapy? Is it, is it psilocybin therapy that, that they yeah. all have in this documentary? Medically supervised psychedelic intake using ibogaine, some other things all under the realm of psychedelic drugs yeah i don't know what it would have been like for him that you know i don't think he would be open to it so right yeah and it's interesting because i feel like there's still so much i know i'm jumping around here but so much judgment because of the 60s of it being a party drug the psychedelics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there was a real mm -hmm. backlash from that right Right. That's why it's, I think it's taken so long for, you know, medically supervised psychedelic therapy to be accepted. Yeah, as a medicine. Yeah, because yeah. of what happened in the 60s, you know. 
everybody was get high, turn on, tune out. Yeah, and just sort of counterculture. Yeah. Well, my next word that came through was Hagen dazs I actually could taste it as I was tapping in. Tell me, like, what that brings up for you. I'm sure there's you're smiling, so because you well, still you still have it to this day, and it's I, been through your whole life. Probably started in about '67. I mean, we could Google it and find when did Haagen-Dazs start, but it was in the 60s and it was, I think, in the later 60s. When you say the word Haagen-Dazs, it immediately brings me to my friendship with Peter Cole. Yeah. My best friend starting from when I was 13 and to this day, mm -hmm. um, because his father was an executive with Haagen-Dazs back in the beginning, and he always had a freezer full of Haagen-Dazs ice cream. That started my addiction to, uh, to Haagen-Dazs. You know, some people talk about when they had their first drink and, you know, they went from beer to vodka. They're alcoholics. I had my first Haagen-Dazs when I was 16, and uh, I still have a freezer full of Haagen-Dazs. Amazingly, None of Peter's family or your family are overweight. Right. right. <laughs> you just got lucky there. <laughs> well, my, my mother used to have a bowl of ice cream every night before she went to bed for many, many years. As a matter of fact, she just recently told me that she's not doing it anymore. At the nice young age of 97, she says, ah, I've stopped having bowls of ice cream. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, a little it's, side note of that. Yeah. Is, mm -hmm. So my mother was very frugal. So she would buy the least expensive ice cream that the supermarket Dolly had. Madison. That would be a good ice cream. Oh, okay. She did have that. Food Emporium? <laughs> name brand for A&P or Shopwell. These were the supermarkets back when I was a child. She would have the cheapest ice cream. It had such... haagen is so great because of the cream content is so large. The ice cream she bought, the water content was so high and the cream content was small. So that if you had it in your freezer for longer than three days, you start getting icicles. Yeah. Agnites or whatever they're called in the ice cream. When I first tasted Haagen-Dazs, it was a whole new experience of ice cream. And even to this day, it's a matter of that I can afford to buy Haagen-Dazs. I don't need to buy the cheapest ice cream. I can buy Haagen-Dazs. And there's something about that in growing up in a household where uh, everything was measured in terms of how much does it cost. Yeah, post-depression era. You know, my mother looked at the price of everything. commented, do you believe gas is now 35 cents a gallon? Or do you believe bread has gone up to blah, blah, blah? Whatever it was, she was commenting on it. To buy Haagen-Dazs throughout my life was like, I can afford to do it different. My father didn't make a lot of money. He just made enough that if we watched our pennies and nickels and dimes, we could get by. Mm -hmm. We could, you know, live a nice middle-class life. What was interesting was, my grandparents were wealthy. If it was just my father's salary, we'd look very middle class. But because of my grandparents, they could afford that we could belong to the nicest beach club in Westchester. Dad could, could have a horse. And, you know, different things like that that made us look a little wealthier than, than we really were. See, whenever we would visit Grandma and Grandpa's house in New Rochelle, 
to me, their house was like a mansion. Yeah. I thought they had this huge foyer and, you know, the black and white tiles and the huge living room with the plastic on the couches that you can't sit on. Like, it just seemed, it's the big banister up the stairs. It just seemed like this huge house and all this land too, to me. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is, yes, they could afford, I mean, the house cost 48000 back in uh, when they buy it, let's say, 62, 63. Yeah, they really couldn't afford to fix it up. And when they sold that house, that house from the outside should have sold for twice as much as they sold it for because it just needed a lot of work. It was really 20 years of never doing anything to enhance the house like most people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. just even maintaining it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just put some putty over it or just put a coat of paint over it and keep going. Yeah, it's so interesting the perspectives that you you feel like you were like middle class and I thought you guys were rich. <laughs> I, I, I can see why you thought that. I mean, dad would go to the stable. Mom would go to this fantastic beach club. But, you know, they all had way of doing it that didn't involve us putting out money. And so the next word I wrote down is Cape Cod. Mm, Cape Cod. I know this has become quite a personal interview. Yeah, well, Cape Cod brings up family. It's hard to say the word Cape Cod without thinking of Gussacks, because the Gussacks had a house on Cape Cod. So from the time I was 16 or 17, I visited the Gussacks at their house on Cape Cod. And then starting in 1987, when I was dating Faith Gussack, we started going to Cape Cod in the summer. I went to Cape Cod every summer from 87 to 207. I have such a great memory of you telling me memories of sneaking off with your friend to go to Cape Cod. These kind of silly stories that happened. And then, of course, I have memories of going with you that were so beautiful and positive. Yeah, When you say Cape Cod, I think of family. I think of you kids. I think of you kids sitting on the beach on Long Pond. You know, you holding Jonathan as a baby. The kids playing in the water. Throwing us off the raft. I think of us on the raft on not Long Pond, but Great Pond. You guys are a little older and we're hanging out on the raft. There's a great picture of all of us on the raft. It's funny, we were just looking at that picture. One of the other things that I wrote down that came through was just to ask you about New York City and music and the 60s in Greenwich Village. Mm, It was a very exciting place. Very exciting place. As a teenager... There was nothing more exciting than going down to Greenwich Village, going to a concert at the Fillmore East, which was in the East Village, seeing these groups that, you know, that I love. It was a very special time. And years later, I mean, it was such a special place for me to go down to the village. And years later, when I worked in the city and every once in a while, I'd go down to the village for something. I go, wow, what happened here? How much things have changed and how how special and It was to me in the 60s, I wanted to do a film. I wanted to make a movie Mm -hmm. that took place in the 60s in Greenwich Village. I I always admired and loved this group, The Love and Spoonful. And The Love and Spoonful was headed up by a man named John Sebastian, as you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he wrote the songs. He was he put the group together. 
So I thought, hey, who better to write stories about Greenwich Village in the 60s than John Sebastian? I wanted to meet him and I wanted to pitch him on the idea, let's write stories that take place in Greenwich Village in the 60s around the music scene. I finally got to meet him. It was interesting. I got to meet him and he agreed to meet for dinner. I had someone who made the connection for me. He brought his wife along and we had dinner up in Woodstock where he lives. Afterwards, his manager got back to us and said, nah, he's not really interested. Mm. I was heartbroken. <laughs> and I thought, oh man. So I called his manager and I said, get me an hour with him alone. I just need time with him alone. This the thing with dinner with other people there didn't work for me. And it, you know, I could tell he he didn't get the connection. I said, please get me an hour with him alone. So he calls back in November, very close to Thanksgiving. He said, look, the day before Thanksgiving, Wednesday, obviously, he says, be there at noon. He'll give you one hour. You can talk to him for one hour. It's great. I'll be there at noon. Mm -hmm. Get there at noon. John's there. Where's He's, there? Woodstock. At his house. I'm sorry. Oh, at his house. His house. Go to his house. He'll give you an hour. Uh, I go to his house. We go inside. We start talking. And around five o'clock, I leave. We talk for five hours straight. And <laughs> wow. We really hit it off and he got what I wanted to do. And that was the start of six months that I went up to his house in Woodstock. I was living in Bedford, New York at the time, which was about an hour, a little under an hour and a half from Woodstock. So I drive up there every Saturday and we spend a good part of the day, him telling me stories and me recording them. Amazing. I thought we really had something and we started pitching the idea out in LA. And that must have been so fulfilling for you, the child in you, and so fulfilling for him to be able to have a safe space to just reminisce. Yeah. Yeah. With someone who was so interested in his stories. Yeah. It was. And even as John said, you know, nothing has come out of it so far. You never know. But he said, hey, the fr friendship came out of it. And that's how I feel. I mean, look, to have six months of talking to John Sebastian to me was, you know, really a childhood dream. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and you've got all the recordings, right? So it's there. Yeah. Well, they're on a computer that I have, but it's dead and I'm not sure I can retrieve a lot of it. Oh no. <laughs> oh God. Uh, okay. Uh. John's still around. We can get the stories again. <laughs> yeah, so that was, you know, Greenwich Village. And one day uh, I met John in the village, and John gave me a tour of Greenwich Village, telling me the places that he played and who oh, played. Oh, wow. In which, you know, this was Cafe Agogo, and this was Cafe Wa, although I think Cafe Wa is still there. Uh, but he went all these different places that he played, even though they, they may be turned into something else now but uh, it, it was great you know just think of uh maybe you're not like if your niece allison got a tour by taylor swift of the places that she went to yeah you know when she was starting out yeah amazing oh yeah granny Valley's very cool place thank yeah. you so much for you know it takes a lot of courage and I really want to acknowledge the courage that it takes to, first of all, lay down and like, and just breathe because most people are not willing to do that. They don't want to take the time. They don't want to feel their feelings. They don't want to be with themselves. They don't want to stop. 
So that takes a lot of courage. Second of all, it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable and talk about your family, private, intimate, you know, sentimental, difficult moments of, you know, parents and people passing away and struggles and all of this is like really takes a lot of courage and vulnerability and honesty to get to the root of all of that. So thanks for going on that ride with me. And then, you know, getting into your history and like how you've grown and all these sort of discoveries that you made like that takes courage so i appreciate you being willing to take the time and and have um the authenticity and honesty that you had you know so that i could share with the people that are wanting to listen about your journey and what you've learned and i think it's a fascinating story of healing and spirituality and entertainment and um hollywood and that's really what my podcast here is about is how does healing meet hollywood so this is you're the perfect person to talk about all this and there's so much for you to share so i'm hoping that i can get you to come on again but for now i'm just wanting to give you so much gratitude and share so much gratitude for you sharing so much that you shared and just know that i love you and i appreciate you so thank you dad well it, it was a lot of fun what I thought would be one hour turned into three hours. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's really, it's really nice. Look, uh, especially talking about family stuff, it's, it's just great to talk to you about it under, under the guise that we're doing an interview. Right. For, yeah. For yeah. It's uh, certainly easier to talk about movies and uh, marketing than, uh, and to really dig deep and be honest about parenting and my parents and relationship and relationship. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. You do a great job interviewing. You're really quite natural and in tune and intuitive. Hmm. Thanks. Learn from the best. <laughs> hey, you got through that podcast. Way to go. Did you get something out of it? Did it touch your heart in one way or another? Did it expand your ideas? Did it make you feel a little bit more creative? I'd love to hear your responses and reactions to this Siri at sageandblushwellness.com. Feel free to reach out. Seriously, I want to hear from you. Also, if you have ideas about who I should interview, maybe it's you, maybe it's a friend you know. Someone that's a mentor, someone you think is really interesting and that voice needs to be heard. If you're looking for support or know someone who's looking for support in any of the various ways that Sage and Blush Wellness offers support, please feel free to share through text, through social media. Sage and Blush Wellness offers so many different ways of support. Check it out. I look forward to hearing from you. Have a beautiful rest of your day. And remember, you are enough right here, just as you are.